Everyone has their own unique views and needs when it comes to financial success. If you'd like to leave your financial woes behind and live a life of financial freedom, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Saving with Steve show, hosted by Steve Sexton. The show will help you with the ins and outs of money. We talk about financial issues that could be costing you thousands of dollars and keeping you up at night. We talk about money, tax reduction, saving more, spending less, 401ks, risk management, retirement, and everything under the sun that relates to you having a healthier, happy relationship with money. Now, here is your host of Saving with Steve, Steve Sexton. Hello, welcome to the Saving with Steve show where we talk about the ins and outs of money, pretty much everything under the sun that relates to you having a happier, healthy relationship with money. My name is Steve Sexton, and this is the Saving with Steve show. Now, I want to thank you for joining us. We have well over 600,000 listeners. We have over 44,000 in Europe through UK uh, Health Radio, and it's growing. Hey, we're definitely talking about money today. Hey, feelings of self-doubt are nothing new for women in the workplace. In fact, 75% of female executives experience imposter syndrome, but with personal and professional lives colliding, it has become more difficult than ever to fake it till you make it, regardless if you are female in the workplace or not. You can learn the lessons from one of our guests, Gene Donahue. Gene is going to help us take off the camo. Now, today I'm going to be talking about how Social Security looming's shortfall could affect your retirement plans. And then we've all seen this homeowner's market just go crazy. It's getting really expensive. People are getting priced out. I live in California. People are moving out of California. They're moving out of other high-priced states. You know what? It's the quintessential American dream. It's, you know, it's all white picket fence glory, maybe exactly what causes, you know, nightmare that keeps millions awake at night uh, because of housing insecurity. Now, we have Alina Schindler here. Her new book's called Housing for Humans. The book is a provocative exploration of the history and causes of American housing crisis, the challenges that homeowners, policymakers, designers reimagine the future of housing for an ever-evolving population. Now, Elena... You know what? She's come up with a wonderful idea for how we can do that. She shares it in the book. I'm really grateful that you're here because a lot of people are concerned about the housing market. Um, the reality is, you know, in my state, California, they put on the plans 100,000 homes. But with all the bureaucracy, zoning and everything that goes along with it, you know, that's going to be hard pressed. And you know what? 100,000 homes isn't going to be enough in California. So, you know what, Elena, I want to thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I'd like to ask you this because I always ask people how they like to they got into what they're doing. And my understanding is your passion started with Legos. Yeah, well, as a kid, probably as every kid out there, I've been playing Legos like all my life. And I am a licensed architect now. Now, my kids have inherited the Lego um, the Lego passion. And let's who knows, maybe they'll become architects in the future as well. I was going to, I love that about your bio as you started out with Legos. Because, you know, for all of us, if we're listening, you probably remember Legos. It brings you back to them and what you used to build. Or, you know what? Um, I'm not an architect, so I wasn't very good at building stuff with Legos. I always uh, like the ones where you build a, a, a person or something like that. So now, one of the things that I noticed in your book is you talk about how the housing crisis today. So let's talk about that a little bit first. How do you see this housing crisis? So yeah, the housing crisis that we're watching today is a housing crisis that was uh, in the design of how our 
cities became to be. Our cities for a lot of zoning and race and economic issues became this low density, more sprawly um, single homes in large lots, when in fact our society started evolving into smaller families, families that had challenges with finances, families that got their education degrees at different ages, who married at different ages later and multiple times and had kids at different times. Those realities started reshaping how people can, if they can at all, afford housing. It's not that from one day to another, we decided that living in denser communities was desirable or not. It's just a reality of how much money car maintenance take, how challenging it is to live um, a convenient life for those that don't drive or don't want to drive or don't want to own a car. So those things that have very, very strong cultural views. And that's why I opened the book with my vision when I was a child about the movie Home Alone, that the house was so gigantic from when you're a kid. And you saw that, that the kid gets lost in his own house. Even if it's funny in the movies, it becomes less funny when you think about how a family ages, what happens when people can't navigate stairs when people have more house that they can afford. So these new movement that I started watching in my own architecture office here in Washington, D.C., was the demand from clients to having not just more house, but a house that would fit their lifestyle. So it started as an undercurrent of somebody I had a townhouse in Capitol, um, in Capitol Hill. Somebody's like, hey, we have too much house. We want the basement to generate income as an apartment. And it happened one time. And then a couple months later, I got another call. And then I realized in 2016, Washington, D.C. changed the rule for zoning. And they said, you have the right to make another apartment within your own property, which is a pretty innovative thing to do. California actually just passed it, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, with some variations, you can actually create more than two units. Um, so with those zoning laws that sound so dry and legalese and obscure, they're reflecting how families actually now can access housing, can afford housing, how can actually they can age between the main house and the accessory. So you can think of like a parent with boomerang children, you know, children that go out in the world to get higher education and they come back and the jobs that are available to them are not enough to afford housing, to afford student debt. So all these new model of housing makes room for the families that we are today in the 21st century and not the houses that we have in stock that were created in the 50s or with the idea of families that are less popular right now. Okay. So when, uh, and I'm going to, one of the things that came in on our blogs was that two unit zoning. So that means two units on one property. Now, what does that actually look like? I mean, uh, can somebody turn their house into a duplex real quick or? Correct. So um, it becomes a matter of design. It becomes a matter of what works best for the person uses. So say you have somebody with uh, mobility issues or somebody who's, you know, 70 or 65 and aging and wants to stay in the neighborhood. For that person, you want to avoid stairs. So converting the garage into an apartment sounds reasonable because you have a direct path of circulation from the curb 
all the way to the house without steps. And you can create a very good design. In a two-car garage, you can create a one-bedroom house. So even the houses are in your neighborhood now. I don't know how suburban your neighbor is. If you squint your eyes a little bit, all those garages could be houses and your neighborhood would look just the same. Um, also suburban uh, neighborhoods as they are right now, they have lengthy curb cuts and driveways. So the fact that you can't park a car indoors, that's not actually to take away parking opportunities for the neighborhood because, you know, drivers are long enough that you can put a couple cars there. Um, lots are wide enough. So you have enough length to host, to park cars there. So like I said before, the, a, a two unit property could look like they do now. Um, they could also be um, in the basement here in Washington, D.C. We have the typical townhouse has two stories above ground, one below. So that apartment also. But again, it's invisible. You're creating a more housing without touching the city as you know it. If you wanted, though, you could create interior partitions um, or you, depending on the layout of the lot and the size of the house and other details, the the new house could be attached to the existing one. It's a matter of like design and creativity. I don't think that more housing, it's a negative mm -hmm. when it comes to aesthetic. You can have good looking uh, housing or bad looking houses and that is not related to the number of housing. Well, I understand that. <laughs> My wife looks down the street and say, why did they paint their house that color? Uh, so. <laughs> Hey, look, guys, stick with us. We're going to take a break. We're going to be right back with some more Elena. More expert advice for having a happier relationship with money still to come on the Saving with Steve show. Don't let your financial woes keep you up at night and prevent you from living a life of financial and personal freedom. Hi, I'm Steve Sexton, host of the Saving with Steve show. We're going to be talking about the ins and outs of money, those financial issues that could be costing you thousands of dollars, causing stress, keeping you up at night. We're going to talk about money, tax reductions, saving more, spending less your investments, risk management, retirement, and everything associated with you having a healthier, happy relationship with money. So if you've ever dreamed of living a life of financial and personal freedom, you owe it to yourself and your family to tune into The Saving with Steve Show. Join me, Steve Sexton, on The Saving with Steve Show as we talk about everything under the sun when it comes to money. To learn more about the show, visit savingwithsteve.us. That's savingwithsteve.us, savingwithsteve.us. We'll see you soon. Welcome back to the show that is here to help you achieve your financial goals. It's the Saving with Steve show. Now here's your host, Steve Sexton. Hey, welcome back to the Saving with Steve show. I truly thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you letting your friends and family and associates know about the show. Hey, all the replays are available at savingwithsteve.us. If you're enjoying the stories, have helpful information, insight on Saving with Steve, then I encourage you to subscribe to our Google Play, Spotify channel, and our YouTube channel. So if you so you never miss a show. And check out a few of our affiliates at UK Health Radio, BBS Radio, Talk Radio New York City, E360 TV, and Las Vegas TV Network. All these networks are dedicated to empowering you to solve problems, uplift your spirit, and live a life of financial and personal freedom. Now, if you'd like to join us on Facebook, you can always go to the Saving with Steve Sexton Facebook page to get more uh, tips background, uh, guest gifts, and so on. So, hey, we're back with Elena. And one of the things that 
you know, people have realized that one of the ways that they can solve this housing crisis is by creating an additional apartment in their house uh, or re remodeling things. And you've been doing a lot of that, especially in Washington, D.C. with basements and other things. Now, one of the things that have been coming out here in California and many other states are the additional dwelling units, and everybody calls them ADUs for the acronym. And you know what? How is this a way in which we can address the aging population, provide more housing for to make it more affordable for people and things like that? So naturally, additional dwelling units, and we call them by the same acronym here in D.C., and I also work in Maryland and Virginia. Uh, we, Washington is so close to the other states that we are like one large region. The way um, additional dwelling units contributes to housing is because it creates new units of innovative sizing that didn't exist before for a new population. So for example, if you're a person that is trying to retire and are going to be in a fixed income, you may want to stay also in the neighborhood you currently live, but if you've raised a family in that neighborhood, it's quite likely that the neighborhood only has houses sized for growing families, which is not something you want to look forward to spending in your retirement. You want to you want to live somewhere smaller. So there's this connect right now where people want to retire, want to live in. The houses don't match. The housing stock doesn't match what people want. So that's why they end up moving, not because they hate their neighborhoods or they hate their neighbors, but because the houses they can afford are not available in that zip code or that neighborhood. The idea of additional dwelling units is creating new houses of new sizes and new proportions and with new features that are smaller than the houses that are existing right now. Um, like I said, it could be in a garage, it could be a new structure, it could be the construction method you choose, it could be local to whatever region you are. Obviously, if you're near an area where there are lots of companies that do prefabrication, you can uh, buy it from prefabricated um, prefabricated systems. I talk about it in a book a little bit of like buyers beware because sometimes innovation in construction doesn't carry all the advantages that tradition might be. I'm a big fan, maybe because I'm so used to working here in DC where the youngest house is like, you know, the, the, this from the 1900s. But um, I'm always very curious when people come with innovative methods of construction. I'm always very technically aware of like, what am I actually getting? What I'm actually paying for and what I am not. Um, in the book, I covered a lot. I tried to explain what systems are. Okay, so somebody's selling you a shell or somebody's selling you a complete home. The test is how much money will it take from what you sell me until I can walk in with my toothbrush and move in? Is it a complete system or is it not? So I always tell people when you're buying construction or built um, structures from others, ask them right away, is this the finished project from beginning to end or what systems are you living out? Are the foundations included? Is the air conditioning included? Finishes, windows. So I don't, I tend not to marry myself with construction methods, but more with what is the ideal project that the client is trying to achieve? So when you're talking about the modular homes, some of them just come with a shell and you've got to fill in everything else from the um, the in inside walls to the um, insulation to toilets, the whole shot. And some of them come where they're just bringing everything in from the air conditioner to the walls, to the toilets, to the whole shot. And they're just building it somewhere else and bring it to that location and setting it up. 
Correct. And that includes transportation, transit, installation, uh, but also at just even with that system that you're very clear at describing, you never mentioned foundations or site connections. Mm-hmm. What happens with the water, the waste and the power of that house? Because obviously they're bringing it, but somebody else has to lay a foundation where that building will sit. So whenever anybody is planning to do an additional dwelling unit, I encourage them to compare bids from different contractors and compare the key is how much does it cost per square foot? Because in these, in the region where I am, it's significantly cheaper to build with a traditional uh, traditional method, you know, stick build, whatever that may be, um, than, you know, to bring in a shell with a crane. Our alleys here in Washington are notoriously narrow and you have cables and it's very expensive. And will you be able to get a crane through? So, all I'm asking for people exploring this is to do their due diligence to make sure that all the costs are included, particularly the cost if something breaks on transit and, you know, what it will mean. Um, of course, all these projects look very well and good in uh, video, and I've seen a lot of them, and they're fun to watch, but I always wonder how many times it went wrong before they got it right. And they're great when they get it right, and I love to watch 3D printed houses. But again, it has to do with the experience and the particular project that each client wants. I think it's wonderful that you just went through that whole example because we've actually received some blogs and I actually know some people who've had modular homes made and they just didn't know what they did know. And as a result, they end up paying about 45 or 50% more. And at first they thought they were getting a great deal and it didn't turn out to be the great deal that they thought it was because all the additional things that they had to add uh, mm-hmm. or bring in and do. Uh, and some of that was just connecting sewage water uh, and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, was it? Um... You, you're correct. In fact, uh, the research I've seen, some of it actually in the books, some of it was like too dense to, like wasn't fun to share is with the existing prefab systems that are in the market, compare square foot to square foot of traditional versus prefab, depending on how much you're prefabricating, the cost increases between 20 and 40% of the same building built with a traditional method. Of course, there are advantages and disadvantages with each, but it's not it's not apples to apples. Um, somebody can say, hey, you gain in speed, but somebody could say, hey, but I have time, but I don't have extra money. So it's it's a balance, of course. Okay. Yeah. No, I just, you know, when, when you're looking at consumers, you just want to make sure, I mean, it's a big decision and it's a lot of money. So you want to make sure you're fully, you're fully, I'm going to say you fully vet the project to make sure everything's going to work for you. And it's going to have that expectation that you have, or that vision in your mind is it's all going to be there when it's done. (laughs) Right. In the book, I explore that because I realized that for architects, engineers, and general contractors like mine, uh, I like people I share time with, this is like a natural thing to do. You start looking around and it's like, show me the foundation connection, show me where the toilet will go, show me where the water will go, things like that. And it's natural that the end user, the consumer will not look at those details, but those actually carry most of the ticket price. The ticket price in construction is what you don't see. It's not the paint, it's not the drywall, it's everything that's between the, pace, the spaces you see. So that's why, particularly when it comes to additional dwelling units, that people are looking at the economy side of it to be really, really aware of what you're paying for and what you're getting at the beginning and at the end. That's wonderful. And I'm, I'm really glad you said that because most of our blogs are from people who experience the not-so-positive side of that 
And some of them are building modular custom homes and, um, you know, areas out, uh, out in the hills and places like that. And they learn the hard way, the expensive way. Um, it's natural to try to go with prefabrication methods in areas where reaching, having available materials, having available um, handwork is difficult. That is natural because you don't have a store to go and get, I don't know, glue or drills or tile. So it's natural to want to save time there. But in areas where we have easy access to materials, Sometimes the savings of transportation, you know, bringing a prefab house from Michigan to Iowa is more expensive than buying two by sixes in the um, Home Depot that's a mile down the road. So there is a there's a true cost of of transportation is an extreme cost in construction. Mm -hmm. This is wonderful. Hey, Elena, I want you know our time went really, really fast. <laughs> but it was wonderful information. And you know what? You have this wonderful book. Housing for Humans, it's very easy. It has a lot of uh, small orange houses with uh, sketches on top. I leave it here with Snoopy, okay? Um, okay, it doesn't want to stay, so I'll hold it. Um, and um, my my handwork is on, on the front cover as well. Um, and I talk a lot about what we talked about today, which is the background information that we all need to see if housing is going to help or hurt us in the long term. That's wonderful. Now, where can people get your book? Well, for now, it's in Amazon and it's all the large stores. It comes out October 21st. It's already available via Kindle. Um, and I think um, if you, it, it will be available in all the local, uh, local bookshops as well. If you want, you can request it. It will be available via their catalog. Uh, if not, you can come to my website. I have links there where to find it as well. Okay, so on Kindle, how much does it cost everybody right now? It will be uh, 99 cents until October 21st, uh, which is the launch day. And after, I think, October 22nd, I think the price goes up to six. I'm not, I'm not totally sure, but it was something around that. Um, and the book now, the soft cover, is available for pre-order. Um, I know a lot of people are pre-ordered already, um, but yeah, and it will become live on the 21st, but I mean, you can pre-order it now and it will be shipped to you as soon as it's available. You know what? We have a lot of syndicated affiliates in your area. Uh, if somebody's interested in talking to you about architecture and maybe designing something for them, how do they get a hold of you? Well, I have the easiest website because my name is my website and I'm the only one in Google. It's ileanashinder.com. Uh, you can probably Google me or go directly to my website and very easy to reach. Um, you know, there's a contact page right there. If you send me an email that way, um, the messages get directly to me, particularly if people are interested about talking about projects um, that have general questions. I love it when people say, I've never worked with an architect before. I'm the, I'm the architect that gets all those clients. And I get very excited about helping people navigate the design process. Oh, that's wonderful. Hey, Elena, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, it was wonderful information. I know a lot of people are going to be helped by it. More importantly, a lot of people are going to save a ton of money from that discussion we had. So be safe, be healthy, and possibly have you back again. Okay. Thank you so much, Steve. I'll talk to you soon. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Elena Schindler. She's got this wonderful book called Housing for Humans, a book to imagine, create, and design a new housing model in America. You know what? Wonderful architect. She's got a great concept. And you know what? There's many ways that you can go about creating housing for the ones that you love, uh, especially if somebody's getting a little older and so on. So plus, if you get the book, she'll go through the ins and outs. So if you're looking at a project like that, 
you can save a ton of money. Now, hey, look, you're gonna need to stick with us. We're gonna be right back. I'm gonna be talking to you about what's happened with Social Security. More expert advice for having a happier relationship with money still to come on the Saving with Steve show. Don't let your financial woes keep you up at night and prevent you from living a life of financial and personal freedom. Hi, I'm Steve Sexton, host of The Saving with Steve Show. We're gonna be talking about the ins and outs of money, those financial issues that could be costing you thousands of dollars, causing stress, keeping you up at night. We're gonna talk about money, tax reductions, saving more, spending less, your investments, risk management, retirement, and everything associated with you having a healthier, happy relationship with money. So if you've ever dreamed of living a life of financial and personal freedom, you owe it to yourself and your family to tune into The Saving with Steve Show. Join me, Steve Sexton, on The Saving with Steve Show as we talk about everything under the sun when it comes to money. To learn more about the show, visit savingwithsteve.us. That's savingwithsteve.us, savingwithsteve.us. We'll see you soon. Welcome back to the show that is here to help you achieve your financial goals. It's the Saving with Steve show. Now here's your host, Steve Sexton. Hello, welcome out to the Saving with Steve show where we talk about the ins and outs of money. Again, if you'd like to follow us, you can go to savingwithsteve.us or you can go to Spotify, Google Play, YouTube. You can see all the reruns right there. Now, today I'm going to be talking about... how Social Security's looming shortfall could affect your retirement plans. This is really important. You know what? We just recently got the notification that Social Security payments are going to go up by 5.9%. What a big jump. Big, big jump. Great jump. It's wonderful. Now, one of the big things that we don't all realize here is this. We also got a notification earlier this month that according to the new part showing benefits could be reduced sooner than anticipated. And this could set off some alarm bells, especially when those are planning to retire within the next decades. Now, Social Security, the the reserves are expected to run out in 2033. That's a year earlier than previously estimated. And this is according to the Social Security Trust and the Medicare Trust Fund. That means the entitlement program will only be able to pay out 76% of scheduled benefits at that time if nothing is done to boost the fund, okay? So people who are looking to retire early in their 50s or in the next 10 or 15 years can probably expect somewhere between 80% or less of that Social Security benefit, obviously, if nothing's done. Now, the economic fallout brought out by the pandemic changed Social Security's funding outlook, employments, earnings, Interest rates, GDP dropped significantly last year and will recover gradually over the next couple of years, but the pandemic also elevated the mortality rate, slowed the birth rate, and reduced all which things that are that affect the shortfalls projected to the, the report. Okay. So when we take a look at this, this is already exasperating an already hamstrung agency. You know what? Social Security has been paying out more than it's been taking in. At some point in time, there won't be enough reserves for them to pull from. The government enacted the same some some levers back in you know four decades ago, like increasing full age Social Security eligibility. You know what? From sixty five to sixty six, and now it's sixty seven. Payroll taxes went up. Okay, we also saw 
taxation on Social Security, okay? And that hasn't been adjusted since 1984. And the reality is, in our country, it's a matter of whether the country's going to prioritize pressing problems. So think about this. There's a lot of things that they see that are a bigger priority that are near term. So it's not like it's not an issue, but it's just a 2033 issue, not a 2021 issue. Hey, we got a lot of issues in 2021. When you're a politician, you want to do stuff for things that are going to happen now. But they all know that there are some issues. Now, politicians don't want to lose their position. You know, they want they don't want to get voted out. They want to be there. So it doesn't look like or it doesn't make sense that they allow the program to fall apart or reduce benefits for people because that would create a bigger economic problem. What they are looking at doing and what you've seen the White have to do with their current tax plan is looking at, you know, like right now, if your income is $150,000, you'll pay Social Security taxes of 6% on $144,000. They plan to move that 144 level all the way to $400,000, adding more revenue. Will it add enough? I don't know. They could also be looking at, they could be looking at other things such as the cost of living allocation. It might not go up as much as we've seen right now. In addition to that, hey, if you delay your uh, taking your social security benefits past full retirement age, there's an 8% increase each year. It might not be 8%. They might be looking at different ways to calculate your social security payment, all sorts of things. But the key here is this, they're looking to make it solvent, okay? And they're looking for the long-term. But if that doesn't happen in the fashion that it could, you need to assess certain things. Okay, you need to factor in the potential reduction into your retirement planning. Okay, I would look to find a financial advisor, financial expert. I'd encourage you to create a retirement plan and have it stress tested. I'm talking a retirement income plan for multiple outcomes relating to health, whether you have health issues in retirement, whether one of you passes away and you lose the Social Security, it's a loss of income, employment, living expenses when to file social security, which should be treated as a supplement to savings. Social security isn't, is, isn't the sole cushion for you after you stop working. The program is really conceived to provide 30 to 40% of your social security, your pre-retirement income, okay? It's not designed to fully support you. So if you're looking to do that stress test, hey, you need to take a look at some things with social security. So like the average benefits, $1,543. That means, you know what? You're getting about eighteen thousand five or six hundred dollars, or you know five, six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars a year. Okay. If there's a correction and your Social Security goes down twenty five percent, you're going to get a little over fourteen thousand dollars. Okay, over a twenty year period, that's a ninety thousand dollar adjustment. So it's very important that you look at ways to maximize your Social Security. That's number one. Number two. If you're looking to calculate this for yourself, hey, go to your social security statement. All you do is find out what your full retirement age benefit is and slash 25% from it. That way you can figure out what you can expect on a monthly basis, okay? And if that's not enough, you wanna take a look at, hey, how can I add more? So if you're five, 10, 15 years, 20 years away from retirement, the key here is this, how much money can I put away in order to put myself in a position? Now, if you're planning to have only 75% of your Social Security benefit, worst thing that happens, it's all there and you have 25% more. Not a bad situation. But here's the thing, folks. 
You want to make sure you can stress test your retirement savings. That means what if there's a health issue? What if one of you pass away? What if Social Security is 25% less? What if there's a market correction? If you can create an income plan that addresses those issues when they occur, you'll know what they'll happen. In the last 18 months, there's been about, oh, five or six people that I had to deal with that were referred from other people. And here's what happened. See, they didn't have an income plan. So when one person passed away, they lost Social Security or Social Security and a pension, which means, you know, I had one gentleman who lost $4,000 a month just from his wife passing away because of COVID. That's sad. You know what? He's going to have, he has, he has no choice but to sell the house, downsize and move, change his living. He's even considering going back to work. Do you want to go back to work when you're in, your, you're in your 70s or 80s? You don't want to. So it's very important that you take the time now to become financially literate about your financial situation to make sure, regardless of whatever happens, you're going to have the money you need to live on so you can have that retirement of your dreams. Okay? So, hey, look, I want to thank you all for joining us again here today on Retire Smart Magazine and Saving with Steve here. Um, and you know what? We just finished with Elena Schindler and her book, House for Humans. Just talked to you about how Social Security could affect it by the short term and how you could and what you can do. And you know what? We're going to take a quick break, pay some bills, and we're going to come back with Andrea McGinty. And we're going to talk about the cuffing season. And that's all those single people looking to get out and find somebody when it's cold. So stick with us. We're going to be right back. More expert advice for having a happier relationship with money still to come on the Saving with Steve show. Don't let your financial woes keep you up at night and prevent you from living a life of financial and personal freedom. Hi, I'm Steve Sexton, host of The Saving with Steve Show. We're going to be talking about the ins and outs of money, those financial issues that could be costing you thousands of dollars, causing stress, keeping you up at night. We're going to talk about money, tax reduction, saving more, spending less, your investments, risk management, retirement, and everything associated with you having a healthier, happy relationship with money. So if you've ever dreamed of living a life of financial and personal freedom, you owe it to yourself and your family to tune into The Saving with Steve Show. Join me, Steve Sexton, on The Saving with Steve Show as we talk about everything under the sun when it comes to money. To learn more about the show, visit savingwithsteve.us. That's savingwithsteve.us, savingwithsteve.us. We'll see you soon. Welcome back to the show that is here to help you achieve your financial goals. It's the Saving with Steve show. Now here's your host, Steve Sexton. Hey, I want to welcome you back to the show. That was Jeff Tinsley of The Real Me. And you know what? Like I said, we talked about romance scams. If you're looking whether to be getting in a new relationship online, hiring a new financial advisor, hiring um, a CPA attorney or anybody online, you can go to the real me or like my like, I'm sorry, it's, oh, there's my gaff. Uh, <laughs> um, you can go to mylife.com as an individual and check somebody out you're doing business with. This is the ever-increasing online marketplace. That way you can see if you've got somebody that's not gonna, that's gonna try and steal your heart and your wallet or just steal your heart. So with that, I wanna thank Jeff for uh, being on the show. Now I'd like to introduce you to Jen Donahoe. Jen's a US Navy veteran, engineer, entrepreneur. She's a mentor. Uh, she spent her whole life working career in a man's world, obviously the military. Uh, now she's encouraging women in leadership positions to take their own camouflage off. And even if it's if they're the only women in the room. Now, I want to just share this with everybody. 
there was a study done by KPMG. Incidentally, KPMG just hired my daughter as an intern uh, in the accounting world. And I'm so thankful because they focus on helping people or women um, in the management ranks. And they did a study of people who were one or two levels above the, uh, below the C-suite and said, hey, you know what? You know, how are you feeling? Okay. And you know what? Uh, one of the big things that we saw there is they were concerned about the feelings for being an imposter. Okay. The only person in the room uh, all by themselves, you know, they felt more and more stressed as they accomplished more and they felt like they had to work harder just because they're the only woman in the room. Now, Jen's a specialist. She's lived it. So, you know what, Jen, welcome to the show. I think this is unbelievably important, whether somebody's a man or woman, whether it doesn't matter your ethnicity, because I think that, like I told you before, um, it doesn't matter your gender, your race, how old you are. I think it all adds to that, all adds to the workplace and everybody should be valued. And I think everybody realizes that we value. Now, before we get stoned, I just want to throw this out. Way back when, when our kids were little, my wife went to what's called MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers. And she was freaking out about something the kids were doing. And my son would likely like to chew on crayons. So when she got there, she started talking to the other's moms and found that everybody's eating crayons. So it wasn't something weird. So what I want to tell everybody is that, you know what? You're not in this alone. You have people like Jen who can help you through it, who's, who's been there. And to have that fellowship of women or men or people in your own ethnicity to say, hey, I'm dealing with this too, this is big. So Jen, again, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, more so me. <laughs> hey, you know what? All our listeners, they, they would love to hear your story. You know what? The military is a tough place to be for anybody, let alone a woman. And you excelled. And I just would love to hear your story. I know our, our listeners would. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So I'm an ocean engineer uh, from Texas A&M. And whenever I was about to graduate, I realized that I had all this angst and that I had to go out and I had to see the world. I wasn't ready to just go down to Houston and you know start a job down there with the oil and gas industry. I had to get out and I had to see things. And so I looked at the different uniform services and found that the Navy was really the best fit for me. Now, going through the ocean engineering program, I was one of only two women in the program, you know, so I was kind of getting used to being the only female in the room. It was usually like just me and Michelle, that was it, you know, the, the entire time. And so whenever I got into the, to the military, so first off, there's not that many women in engineering and not that many women in engineering that also want to join the military. And so I was part of the Civil Engineer Corps. And even to this day, we're only about nine to 10% women. And I went to my very first command. So I was out in Guam and had just a fantastic time. If anybody's ever has a chance to go to Guam, they should. But it started there again. I was one of only, you know, one of the only women in the room. Angie was the only other woman usually that was there. You know, it's my other friend. And through the ranks, it's just continued that way. Now I've gone to Iraq, I've gone to Afghanistan, uh, done expeditionary construction for the Marine Corps, kind of all over the world. And yes, I just got used to really being one of the only females in the room. Well, you know what? Um, that's that's a great story because it's 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 interesting because um, a lot of people have lived that in their own corporate life. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that you know what. Um, um, I like this statement that was made, and I think you made it. it says female entrepreneurs 
do you lean into the fact that you're a woman? And I think you should shed some light on that because I think so many people are doing the fake it till you make it stuff and it doesn't really work. Um, I learned that early on because I was trying to be like the the older guys, but I was like, that's not me. That doesn't work. I felt so stupid doing that. So, you know what? Uh, help us understand that and what women can do. So there's there's a couple of different pieces that you talked about there. And one of them is the, if you're a female entrepreneur, do you really lean into that? And in talking to several of my other very competent friends, and I know through my own life, you know, I, I had to scrap for what I got. You know, I felt like I had to work harder, I had to work longer than all of my other counterparts in order to get where I was. And what I found is that I, I put on this camouflage and, you know, it doesn't really have anything to do with, with the military, but I've kind of realized that that's, I think, where it started is that I felt like I needed to blend in. And so I didn't want to stand out as a female. You know, they usually got too much of the wrong type of attention. And I just wanted to sort of blend in and, and do my job and just try to do it, you know, harder than everybody else. And so I got used to this. It's like, you know, I didn't want to stand out. And so now as an entrepreneur and owning my own company, the question came up, do I want to be a, a WBE, a, a woman business entrepreneur? Because my entire life I had tried not to stand out. And now I'm being asked, should I, should I do this? And I realized there's people out there that want to help us and we don't have to take it as hard as we have. And so signing up to be a WBE or a WOSB, uh, woman owned uh, small business, it's actually been really helpful. And, and it's something that I have realized is like, you know, this is, this is the right thing to do because people do want to help, you know, some of the disadvantaged uh, folks that are out there. And it was really hard to try to get to that point. And so maybe that's just me and my own stubborn pigheadedness. Uh, but that was one of the realizations that I finally came to is that, you know, I do have to start to take off my camouflage and just be who I would really like to be. I think that's wonderful. Um, and all too often people think once in order to move up to do their, to go to the next level, they have to be a certain way. And reality, what got them there is their own authentic self. Right. So right. Yeah, it's really true. Oh, it's really true. So a lot of my friends is like, you know, I've had this conversation and we've been having these conversations over the last several months. And I'm telling you across the board for a lot of people who are, uh, you know, one in the crowd, they've all kind of gone through this process. And once they realized that they had been putting on their camouflage to blend in and they started to take off the camouflage because everybody knew that, hey, you know, they are doing a really good job. They can stand on their own. They start to take off that camouflage. Now, all of a sudden, they're just skyrocketing. They're just soaring because now they can be themselves. And that's really what I found through a lot of uh, my counterparts. And it's not just females. It's actually some men that are in female-dominated, you know, organizations. You know, once they figured out, hey, I can, you know, sort of be myself, man, they're doing fantastic now. Mm -hmm. I think that's wonderful. Now, you know what, women in STEM, and I think it's really interesting because my son is a senior in college studying electrical engineering, and he's like at the top of his class and all that kind of stuff. But you know what, he was hoping to date this year, but it didn't really work out because of the pandemic. And the fact that there's like one girl in engineering. <laughs> she's got her pick. I mean, that's good for her, you know, in the dating scene. <laughs> well, the other part is she's already married. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So it's really funny, but um, when it comes into, you know, how does somebody become a leader in a field that's still dominated by men? And you know what, how do we go about 
building women leaders for the next generation? That's a great question. I think it all has to start with that groundbreaker. You know, once you get into a position where you're seen as a strong female leader, you have to realize that now there's other females that are looking up to you. And that was, um, excuse me, that was one of those really interesting realizations that I went through. And, and like all of these younger females are now looking up to me and basically they've told me, it's like, we now understand that we can achieve this because previously we'd only seen men in these positions. Um, I, I taught at UC Berkeley and I had women coming into my office all the time, just so glad that there was finally a female professor. And that's what it takes. You know, you have to start that momentum. You have to have a couple of groundbreakers so that others are encouraged and motivated so that they can also go into those positions. And it's also incumbent, I think, also on women leaders as well, that we have to really look and we have to make a choice uh, whenever we're looking at, at people who we're going to hire and put in different positions. And it really depends on that person that you're looking at. I'm not a firm believer in just grabbing a female because she's there. Look for the most, you know, the, the one who is has the most fire and has the most drive. You know, maybe that's the person that looks like you at that time. And maybe you help them out in order to, to help their, their career as well. In other words, finding a good mentor was, is wonderful. That, yes. that is so key. Um, you know what, let's, let's hold on a second because I want to talk to you about the, the essential um, things you should be looking for in the right mentor if you're looking for that within the organization. And I know you've been through that and, you probably, and I know you've done an interview on it. So that's why I want to talk about it. So we're going to hold on right here. We got to take a break and pay some bills. So stick with us and we'll be right back with more Jen. More expert advice for having a happier relationship with money still to come on the Saving with Steve show. Don't let your financial woes keep you up at night and prevent you from living a life of financial and personal freedom. Hi, I'm Steve Sexton, host of the Saving with Steve show. We're gonna be talking about the ins and outs of money, those financial issues that could be costing you thousands of dollars, causing stress, keeping you up at night. We're gonna talk about money, tax reductions, saving more, spending less, your investments, risk management, retirement, and everything associated with you having a healthier, happy relationship with money. So if you've ever dreamed of living a life of financial and personal freedom, you owe it to yourself and your family to tune into The Saving with Steve Show. Join me, Steve Sexton, on The Saving with Steve Show as we talk about everything under the sun when it comes to money. To learn more about the show, visit savingwithsteve.us. That's savingwithsteve.us, savingwithsteve.us. We'll see you soon. Welcome back to the show that is here to help you achieve your financial goals. It's the Saving with Steve show. Now here's your host, Steve Sexton. Hello, welcome back. Hey, I wanna truly thank you for tuning in and I appreciate you letting your friends and family and associates know about the show. All the replays are available at savingwithsteve.us. If you're enjoying the stories of helpful information and insight on Saving with Steve, I encourage you to su subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss a show. And check out a few of our affiliates at UK Health Radio, BBS Radio, Talk Radio in New York City, E360 TV, and Las Vegas TV Network. All these networks are dedicated to empowering you to solve problems, uplift your spirit, live a life of financial and personal freedom. Also follow us on Facebook and join the Saving with Steve Sexton Facebook page. And if you'd like to get replays, guest gifts, you can always go to the savingwithsteve.us. Now we're back with Jen 
Donahue, <laughs> we're back here with Jen Donahue with lessons from leaderships. But what we are talking about right now, and I think it's unbelievably important, is to find the right mentor. What are the essential things that one should be looking for to finding that right mentor? Great question. So just to let you know, I never had a mentor growing up just because it really wasn't a thing at that time. And so I was a wild little thing. I was going all over the place. I was going to take on the world by myself. Nobody could tell me what to do. And man, I just made so many mistakes along the way. Uh, whenever I got a little bit older, all of a sudden I had some, some people coming up and saying, hey, will you mentor me? And I'm like, I have no idea how to mentor you because I was never had a mentor myself. So I started looking into it and trying to figure out how do I be the best mentor that I could? And I thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to do something even crazier. I'm going to go get a mentor. Yeah, I was like in my late 30s, but I was like, hey, now's the right time. I'm going to, I'm going to try to figure out what this mentor thing is about. So I started looking around me and I, I found a couple of different people. One of the things I found in my research was that don't have one mentor have a board of directors, somebody who's good at different things. Maybe there's somebody who's technically very strong and they could really help you technically in your job. Maybe that's a great mentor to have. Maybe somebody's really good at business. Maybe somebody's good at finance. Maybe you have somebody who's really good at their family life that could be a good mentor. So okay. I think it's really important to look at these different aspects of your life and think, where can I benefit the most at this time? You don't have to get them all at once, but maybe start to bring them, bring on your board of directors slowly as you realize what you need to be better at. So I have one that's technical and he's been absolutely fantastic. And I just went up and I asked him and I said, hey, would you be my mentor? And that's such a great honor, you know, to, to be asked that. And he had very, you know, strict stipulations and he was like, okay, you're gonna have to work really hard. I'm going to give you lots of homework, you know, but if you want to be my mentee, this is what you have to do. And that was fantastic. On the, on the business side, I have a mentor as well, you know, very different personality, but I would say try out a couple of different people as mentors before you just lock into one, because mm -hmm. it's really important. You're sharing, you know, your life with them and your, your fears and your weaknesses. And you have to have that professional professional relationship and personal relationship with them as you go forward. My last bit of advice is don't get somebody immediately within your chain of command. Uh, you might want to have your boss as your mentor, but I would probably recommend against that. Maybe find somebody else in the company. And the reason why is that, you know, they, they have some skin in the game as well. So maybe if you want to change careers, Maybe they're not going to give you the best advice because you're the best person they have on the team. And so there's a conflict of interest there as well. So that's my one recommendation is don't go for your immediate boss. Maybe look for somebody else uh, within your sphere, but somebody that you feel comfortable with. I think that's wonderful. I think the main point that a lot of people don't think about when they have a mentor is they have a mentor for one, one subject, right. one, one, one vertical, so to speak. And I think it makes a lot of sense to have multiple mentors because I know I've had multiple mentors over the years in different areas that I was weak in. And I said, I, I need help here. And um, I love the fact that you talk about having ground rules on both sides. Uh, so, and uh, a lot of people think that, hey, I should ask my boss to be a mentor. Well, you know what, they should be a coach anyways. They should be a leader. They should help you get to where you want to go. But having somebody different provides a different perspective. And I think that's wonderful. And you know what? When you're playing in the sandbox together, uh, if you can do multiple things, you can do more in the sandbox, which is really important. 
Right. Exactly. Now, um, now, when we talk about um, surviving and thriving through a crisis, okay. So I know you've done an interview. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask the question. What is the? Do you have a process for this? I know you're an engineer. All engineers have a process. So I was wondering <laughs> what yours is. <laughs> yes, and I learned this really in the military. And so we're always ready for a crisis in the military. We're always practicing for a crisis. And I found whenever I was in industry, we really weren't practicing for crises very often. And really it starts with the planning and sitting down and coming up with all of the different problems that could go wrong. And then thinking about what we call immediate action drills. Like if this goes wrong, this is what we're gonna do. And we're gonna practice that. And we're gonna get the whole team together. So we're gonna practice if this happens, this is what we're going to do. So for instance, if you're on a project and something goes terribly wrong, okay, what are your immediate actions? Instead of freaking out, which I know some people have a tendency to do, don't freak out because you you have a little rule book there that says, this is what we do. I contact this person, I contact that person. And now your crisis isn't as bad because you're clicking through it and you know what you need to do and you know what your team needs to do as well. Now, if you're in the middle of a crisis and you just You'd never planned for it, which is probably somewhere that we're in, like right now <laughs> in our current, you know, to, you know, 2021 and 2020. So when you're in that type of crisis, as a leader, the one thing you really need to do is make sure that your team is doing what they need to do and that they have the resources and the care that they need. Because they're going through a crisis in addition to everything else that's going around them. And we have to make sure that as leaders, we're taking care of them. Yes, we need to have our eye on you know, our long-term goals, uh, but at the same time, we have to make sure that we're taking care of our people. So maybe that's, they need a, a different computer. Maybe they need more time to get things done. Whatever that might be during that crisis, make sure that you're taking care of your team. They'll take care of you and you'll get through it. And then the last piece of this whole thing is that you have to debrief at the end. So many of us, whenever we're out of the crisis, we just want to look forward and just go, and we don't want to think about it but there's so much that can be done with the debrief. What did we do well? What, did, what should we improve upon? What could make us more efficient? Maybe there was something that we found during this crisis that if we did this, we're more efficient in the long run. So just take some time to just debrief first before you start to go forward because then you're ready for the next crisis because it's all cyclical. Mm -hmm. No, I agree because learn from what didn't work, learn from what did work, Right. And utilize it in the next step. I, I've seen, um, I've seen so many people freak out over stuff that they didn't need to freak out over. Uh, yeah. And part of this just had to do is being calm and understanding. Okay, here's where we are. Where do we have to go? What do we need to do? And I, I like the fact that you say take care. Okay, there's obviously expectations, but it's a crisis and things are new. You still need to set expect high expectations so people can rise to the cause. And I, I, I love that about what you said, because I think that's a great message that people can resonate and say, okay, I can do this. And I remember, uh, what's his name, who um, was the um, the mayor of New York City during 9-11? Um, Giuliani? Uh, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he says, you know, he says, one thing I learned is just be the calmest guy in the room and then mm -hmm. do exactly what you just said. Everybody's going to be in a situation, like, for example, my daughter's going into KPMG. A lot of companies like that, when you walk in the door, whether to be an intern or a new employee, they're going to put you through the hell month or two or three. 
and they're going to have large lofty expectations. They're mm-hmm. going to push you and you're going to have to learn and you're going to have to uh, develop and grow. Otherwise, you're probably not going to be there. So right. you know what, uh, whether it's men or women, uh, how do you deal with the pressures of high performance expectations? Well, first off, whenever you go there, hopefully you know that those are the expectations that you're going to have to live up to. And then mentally prepare. You might have to be working really long hours in order to meet those goals. My advice, and I'm an engineer, I'm a student for life, you know, go in and study and study and study and study and work really, really hard, you know, during that first startup period. Because not only is that going to get you ahead of the curve because you are studying, you are working, you know, so hard, people will see that you were invested. And there's going to be a time where they start to sort of slacken off a little bit on that because they're testing you. But you have to go in, you know, with that idea. You know, it's just like going through boot camp or or any type of other training. You know that that's what you're going into. So again, you know, study as much as you can, work as hard as you can, and establish yourself as that go-to person. So uh, one of the things I, I do want to chat about is um, before we end here is the yellers. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. But I just call it a, a style on its own, the yellers. Yes. Um, um, I don't, um, that, I mean, when I was first working in the 80s, yes, people yelled and stuff like that. Uh, and I quickly, they, you know, got away from them and moved off and all that stuff. So what would be the advice if you're moving up, if, you know, um, you feel the tendency to want to yell or scream or get upset at, you know, people, that type of thing? <laughs> Go home and yell into a pillow. <laughs> don't. Are you going to say been there, done that? <laughs> uh, my first opportunity to lead people, I didn't know what I was doing. And I looked at the leaders above me, just like you were talking about, and they were yellers. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, I guess this is how you lead people. And so I went in and I yelled at my people and it just, it felt horrible. I mean, it's one of those things where that was like 26 years ago and I still regret doing it because that really wasn't who I was. And so my advice for folks, if they feel like they have to be yellers, you know, maybe that is their personality, but don't fake it just because you think that that's what you're supposed to do. Understand who you are as a leader and maybe you're a compassionate leader. Maybe you're a selfless leader. You know, maybe you are a yeller. And if you are a yeller, I would highly recommend that, you know, you don't yell at your people because that doesn't do good for anybody. You know, they're going to completely shut off um, I saw this happen uh, just actually a couple of weeks ago where somebody yelled at somebody else and you could just see a wall went right up and nothing they were saying was getting through. You know, the person felt awful on the other side. And so it wasn't effective whatsoever. So I would definitely say, don't yell at your people and don't feel like you have to yell at your people just because you think that's what leaders are supposed to do. Well, Jen, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, how can people, I know you're a public speaker, uh, I know you're a mentor and entrepreneur. How can people connect with you to follow you to, you know, get help if they need help or just be part of the, the girls group? Okay. Uh, so I can be reached at jendonahue.com. So there's Jen with two N's, uh, D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I can also be found on LinkedIn at Jen Donahue and on Twitter at Jen Donahue. And on Instagram at I am Jen. Don- Are you seeing a pattern? So if you just, Jen go, with two you just Google Jen Donahue, you'll find me. <laughs> Jen, thank you so much. I love what you're doing. You're spearheading what can be what how 
women have a place to go to know somebody's been through it. And you know what? I think that's wonderful. I know my daughter, I've already sent your stuff to my daughter and she's like, oh my God, I love this oil. So thanks again for being with us today, sharing your knowledge. And I, you know, I wish you the most success and stay happy, stay healthy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Saving with Steve show hosted by Steve Sexton. To learn more about the show and how to become a guest or sponsor, visit savingwithsteve.us. That's savingwithsteve.us. Join us again next time as we continue to talk about everything under the sun that relates to you having a healthier, happier relationship with money. This has been the Saving with Steve show hosted by Steve Sexton.